speak the charm of make charm of make charm There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten. When wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnamancy Podcast. Exploring esotericism, tarot, magic, and the occult. I am Reverend Eric. I know kid has this big, spooky, scary reputation. Back to the Artomancy Podcast. Today I have with me Scott Stenwick. Scott's been practicing ritual and ceremonial magic for more than 30 years. He's published two books on the subject of Enochian magic and is a longtime Ordo Templi Orientis initiate. He's maintained a blog since 2006 in which he has published many of the so-called secrets of modern ceremonial magic in the interests of free and open inquiry. In addition to his Enochian series, he has written several works of paranormal fiction and contributed anthology articles on various magical topics. Uh, thanks for joining us today, Scott. It's good to talk to you. Well, it's good talking to you, Eric. So uh, there's one thing in your introduction that I that I think is kind of fascinating is the, um, you know, you talk about uh, the fact that you've kind of like published openly a bunch of rituals on your website, which for... OTO people uh, seems very unusual to me. So you've got like, you know, your um, elixir rituals. You have like the whole ritual out there for. I think you have rituals for um, specific uh, Gnostic masses and stuff. Like, what what inspired you to do that? Well, um, as I see it, one of the biggest problems that we have with magic and the reason that you know it's this kind of discipline that's out here, it's flaky, whatever, is that. We have, we are centuries behind the physical sciences in the terms of applying the scientific method to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, now, we have a problem when trying to do any sort of scientific exploration of magic, you know, which I think a lot, most of us have a pretty good understanding of, is that consciousness is one of the variables that goes into a magical operation. And we don't have a good tool to measure consciousness. And if we had that, we could investigate magic just like we could, you know, an apple falling out of a tree. However, um, you know, my degree is in experimental psychology. And, I mean, in psychology, you know, we don't have a method for measuring consciousness either. But you can look at things like statistical associations. You can look at probabilities. You can look at associations. And you can apply various forms of analysis to things that might otherwise be You know, you're trying to look at, okay, so how does cognition work? Well, you can maybe come up with an experiment that kind of gets at that sort of sideways because, you know, we can't measure it directly. And in neuroscience, we're getting to the point, too, where, you know, now we can do brain scans that are fairly sophisticated. And while I don't think that... I'm not one of those people who thinks that consciousness is this epiphenomenon of how the brain works. I think it's kind of its own thing. Mm -hmm. I also think it's very closely related to the brain. And so by monitoring the brain, we might be able to get to a point where we could get in there and figure out, all right, so during a successful magical operation, what is like the brain profile that you see of someone casting a spell? So Hmm. now I'm getting a little ahead of myself on your question though. Um, Part of the problem is, is that all these ritual methods and stuff for the longest time have been kept completely secret. You know, you had to join this, you had to join a magical order to learn anything about magic. You know, you had to get sponsors, 
you'd be like sworn to secrecy. Um, you know, and even, you know, after that period, you know, kind of the high Victorian, you know, lodge period, there was this whole period where, you know, there was also, you know, persecution in various places and stuff like that. So people had to keep the stuff they did secret. But because of that, okay, there's no cross-pollination, there's no peer review, there is no real, no real evaluation of experimental protocols between, you know, one form of magic and another. And so we just, we don't have that whole foundation. And so when you have the skeptics like the James Randies of the world coming out to, oh, you know, well, obviously it doesn't work because, you know, if it did, we'd understand it scientifically. Well, that's really one of those things where we're way behind. And we're way behind because of secrecy. And so one of the things that I wanted to do with my blog in terms of publishing these rituals is to be like, all right, I, you know, some people are like, oh, we can't share magic with, you know, the world for whatever reason. I'm like, no, I'm going to share this stuff. Try it. Tell me if it works. I'll collect the data. I'll post my results. You know, I'm, I'm real open about that stuff. And I also will say, I don't think it's necessarily true that, you know, OTO people in particular are secretive about that stuff. I mean, maybe some are. I mean, it's very much... The OTO is very much about, you know, a person's individual will, and so people are more or less secretive to pass. But I think that it's important to have the stuff out there so people can look at it and they can analyze it and say, all right, hey, I got this technique. I think it works better. Hey, you want to try this? Yeah, I'm going to try this. Hey, look, it worked better for me, too. And I mean, that was the beginning of, you know, whole scientific movement mm-hmm. was how that happened, like in chemistry and in physics and stuff like that. And so we got to get that going if we're ever going to understand this stuff. And so that's why I publish the stuff that I do. That is a very in-depth answer that you've, I think you've thought about that. <laughs> uh, no, that's great. That's, that's kind of interesting. There, there's a bunch of stuff in there that, um, that we should dig into a little bit more. Like okay. the com- so, so investigating magic sort of along the same lines as uh, the physical sciences, do you think that it, so we do have some stuff to that, that are, you know, like some big, um, roadblocks there like we can't measure consciousness mm-hmm. uh, and in fact I'm not sure do we even have a good definition for consciousness yet is that a thing well I don't know that there's a model that everyone agrees on mm-hmm. um, there are several models of consciousness out there there have been conferences done for a significant period of time with people talking about different models of consciousness. I think probably the best one we have today currently is Penrose Hammeroff, if you've studied that. I have not. Um, okay. So um, the original idea was proposed by um, Roger Penrose in a book called The Emperor's New Mind that was published in the late 1980s. Mm-hmm. And he has this idea that somehow the brain is interacting with some sort of quantum phenomena, and that's what gives rise to consciousness. Oh, so, yes. You know, I've, I've heard this one. It is kind of a – it's a fascinating idea. Um, I don't know that I totally have my head wrapped around it, though. Well, I can, I can explain it, I think, fairly simply. So the idea is is that the subjective experience of consciousness is some sort of a quantum process that arises from the interaction of various structures in the brain and and the you know the realm of you know quantum information which is a thing that gives you know shape and spin and all that to particles mm-hmm. and um according so Roger Penrose published this original idea which is just a vague idea in the late 80s that 
well, he thought that consciousness couldn't really be explained in a completely deterministic way. And so he thought there must be some kind of quantum information component to it. And that was why he thought that conscious artificial intelligence was probably something that we weren't going to be able to develop. So that's where it sat around 1990. So in the early 2000s, um, he got together with um, a scientist. So Roger Penrose is a mathematician. Mm-hmm. So he was basically writing, you know, more philosophically. So he got together with uh, Stuart Hameroff, who is a scientist, who and he said he's an anesthesiologist. Hmm. And he came up with the... They, they, they looked at the, the at the structure of the brain, and and Hameroff had this idea that there are all, there are these very small structures in the brain called microtubules, and they really are so small that they theoretically could be influenced by quantum events. And so, and what these are is it's it's this like spider web of thing of um, connections that kind of run through the brain that separate from the neural pathways. Mm-hmm. Um, we think that it has something to do with like the glial system and like nourishment to cells and stuff like that. But it also seems to be like a really intricate network of where, where these these structures are, and they're very tiny, and there are a lot of them. And Hameroff's observation was that when you anesthetize a person and you scan their brain, activity in the microtubules completely stops. Huh. And so they started working on this idea. Where, um, okay, so then the microtubules would be the structure that would interface to, you know, quote unquote, quantum reality. And, you know, I want to make sure that also, as an aside, I want to make sure I'm not coming off like one of those people who says quantum when they really mean awesome, because there are way too many of those in the New Age <laughs> right, community. Right, I know. It's like, well... Th- this thing is quantum. Wait, do you mean it actually has something to do with quantum physics, or do you mean you think it's cool? <laughs> because, yeah, there, there, there is a little too much of that. But but at any rate, so so the ORC-OR idea, that, that's, that's what the thing is called. It's called the ORC-OR, or I'd have to look up what the acronym is, but the Stuart Hameroff, the Penrose Hameroff okay. model. Um, and so... My idea of consciousness that I talk about in the blog is actually fairly closely related to that. And, I mean, I think basically I've kind of covered the whole, the idea behind it. So, so there's this, so it, it, consciousness exists as this kind of quantum information thing. And it connects to the physical brain through these microtubule structures. And by, and, so there's this kind of reciprocal relationship between the neural processing and this informational consciousness thing that is mediated by these microtubules. Okay. That's pretty much what I think you need to understand about it. Does that basically make sense? So that, so that does make sense. So in the, in the Penrose Hameroth model, Penrose Hameroth model, consciousness would kind of be, um, almost an emergent property of the complexity of matter and like biochemical reactions then. Well, yes, to to a degree, but it's also its own thing. So it's not just entirely emergent. It's not an epiphenomenon. It can also influence the physiological components at the okay. same time. So it's more like a reciprocal relationship between okay. the two. Um, but consciousness wouldn't necessarily pre-exist the microtubule structure or the, whatever those things are called. It would be something that happened alongside it or developed alongside it. It wouldn't, it wouldn't necessarily, okay. that's correct. It might, 
but it wouldn't necessarily. And that's like a whole other thing that we could get into if you wanted to. But I would be out of my um, head very quickly. <laughs> but okay, yeah, that's but, that's interesting. And so in your in your model, which is very close to that, do you think that consciousness uh, sort of pre-exists or exists externally of the um, matter parts? The well, okay, so no, in a sense, <clears throat> in a sense, I believe it's all matter, but not matter as in like you know, this this it's all matter, it's all matter slash energy, mm-hmm. um, in the following way. So, um, so you have um, quantum information is a property of matter. Okay, that's what gives you know, that's why particles are different kinds mm-hmm. of particles. Okay, and then, as I see it, consciousness is a property of quantum information. Wow. And so, the entire thing, it's, it's, it's one big system, it's one big thing. I'm basically a panpsychist. I mean, I think you could look at the whole universe as permeated with consciousness. Mm-hmm. And that's like, that's like another thing where, so it's, it's not exactly like being an animist, because I don't necessarily believe that there are like aware spirits in everything, though there are, I believe there are spirits in many things. Like mm-hmm. that. Um, it's more like there is this kind of unified consciousness field that permeates the entire cosmos. You know, like, like the dynamic ground of being kind of idea that you see in Wilbur. Right. Is where kind of where I'm coming from. I believe I've actually, maybe I've read it on your blog, but I've definitely heard that term before, a unified consciousness field. That's cool. All right. Well, that's mm-hmm. cool. I, uh, I don't feel like I would argue with that concept. I think it makes a lot of sense to me. Um, okay. Yeah. Oh man, that was okay. Hold on a second. Why were we talking about the, th- <laughs> the nature of consciousness? <laughs> okay, we we were talking. About, we, we got into, we got right into the connection between magic did, and science, like okay, right yeah, away, right. and it's like that's that. It's it, it's a complicated it area. Um, I don't. I don't think the two are adversarial at all. I think we need to study magic as scientifically as we mm-hmm. can. I um, mean, Alistair Crowley's AA motto is, in fact, the method of science, the aim mm-hmm. of religion. So, use science to understand these states of consciousness that relate to magic and mysticism. Right. That makes sense. Okay. Yeah, I totally see what you're saying with that. That makes a lot of sense. And having a good uh, model of how consciousness works or what consciousness might be is probably a really integral part to that sort of exploration. Um, and then on top of that, you have sort of, you know, I mean, I feel like a lot of um, a lot of occultists these days, especially the ones who make the most noise, uh, tend to describe different magical systems or different um, uh, techniques and stuff as as technology. You know, they'll and it might be getting yeah. overused a little bit, where they're always saying like, "Oh, this is you know, fifteenth century tech or whatever." When, um, but so in your in your experience, is the like how, what what role does ritual play in um, in the operation of magic? Well, so so there, there's a couple of ways in which it does. So number one, it's a more organized and systematic way of working with you know the natural psychic ability that you have. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you got people who are psychics, you know, yeah, I have psychic abilities, I can do this and this and this. Okay, well, 
which some people have that, some people have more of it, some people have less of it. Um, but, you know, that that's the thing. I mean, it is true that if you have a decent amount of psychic ability, you can make, you can push reality in the direction you want it to go just by holding a single thought in your mind and really concentrating on it for a period of time, maybe, you know, you know, 20 to 30 mm-hmm. seconds. I mean, it's a fairly short window. Although it feels long when you're doing it, hold a single thought for 30 seconds is actually harder than it sounds. But I mean, that's how a lot of the people who develop these abilities just intuitively do it. Now, the idea of using ceremonial forms, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like a martial art for your mind. Okay. You know, like you have katas and karate and mm-hmm. stuff like that. There are, these are specific ceremonial forms that have been found over the years to work especially well to optimize the magical power, the psychic ability that you have as magical power in order to create practical effects. Okay. Now, the, the second dimension to it is that the ceremonial rituals help in working with spirits. And if you can work with spirits, you can get access to more power than just like the native psychic ability that you mm-hmm. have. So in effect, it's like, you know, I can, you know, I could focus my thoughts on some outcome I want to happen, in which case, you know, I get, you know, whatever amount of power I have pushing it in that direction. Or I can conjure a spirit, in which case, you know, I have my power plus the power of the spirit pushing it in that Mm -hmm. direction. And the spirits generally seem to respond better to things like more formal protocols. I mean, there are people who are really good natural mediums who can just kind of talk to them. I mean, that's that's a talent that a few mm-hmm. people have. But ceremonial forms seem to be the way that it works for, you know, most people if they want to get in touch with spirits. Because, you know, spirits, they seem like they respond, oh, I've seen this kind of form before, this kind of attracts my attention, and they'll, 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 and they'll come and, like, want to work with you. That, I... So yeah, that's, I like that uh, yeah. that way of looking at it. You know, because there there is a lot. I feel like uh, working with spirits has gained a lot of. Um, it sort of had a resurgence in popularity over the last maybe like fifteen years or so. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. especially yeah. since all of the grimoire stuff became popular again. Um, so before that, you had a lot. Well, I mean, geez, I guess now that I'm thinking about it, even all of the old Golden Dawn stuff. It's all kind of invoking spirits in one way or another, isn't it? Well, to yeah. some extent. Although what the Golden Dawn tried did is so, but like, like I don't know if you've seen. Like I talk about this idea of the operant field on my I've, blog. Yeah, I've, I've, okay. I've seen the term, but let's. Can you talk about it a little bit? Okay. There, there are some issues, in my opinion, and I'm going to say in my opinion because you know the, the uh, there, there's Golden Dawn groups out here. They they get in touch with me. They argue with me. Oh, we teach it this way, and you know whatever. So here though is what I have found in terms of using those ceremonial mm-hmm. forms is that I think I have found an arrangement of using them that appears to work better than how at least you know most of the Golden Dawn groups that I know mm-hmm. of teach it. Okay, and most of them teach it the same way it's taught in Donald Michael Craig's okay. Modern Magic. Okay, and. But that, that, which was the best selling occult book of all time. It sold like 300 some thousand copies or oh, something like I that. Started. <laughs> and so, yeah, so a lot of mm-hmm. people have this book. Okay. So, um, so what I did when I worked this stuff out is I did a whole bunch of research with the pentagram rituals and hexagram rituals for years. And 
what I found is that there, there's a couple of things that the Golden Dawn does that actually, to some extent, I think, gets in the way of really working with spirits effectively. And I think part of the reason that the grimoire revival happened at all is that people said, oh, well, well, let's see what happens if I just start working with these according to the old grimoires and I don't use these pentagram rituals and hexagram rituals and stuff, and I'll just use these prayers and things instead. And they started doing it. Wait a minute, our practical results are getting way better. Mm -hmm. What happened? So then some of them go, some of them went in the direction of, oh, yeah, that Golden Dawn stuff, That's they're like psychologizers or New Age or whatever. That's just not, you know, important. I looked at it, though, and I said, well, a couple of the configurations of these rituals I found work really well, and then some of the other ones don't. So, and it turns out a couple of the, the ideas that I find don't work well are things that are being taught as this is the way you do hmm. magic. So, so the main, my main issue is with, okay, so are you familiar with like the lesser ritual, the pentagram, lesser ritual, yes. the hexagram? Okay. So the lesser ritual, the pentagram, okay, the pentagram is the microcosm. That's you, that's your aura, that's your field mm-hmm. of sensation. The lesser ritual, the hexagram, that's the macrocosm. That's the outside world. Yeah. Okay. And as it turns out, so what the Golden Dawn say, what most of the Golden Dawn groups that I have seen online, again, there may be some inner teachings that I don't know about. I'm not an initiate of that system, so I'm not necessarily trying to characterize it. But as, as published by in Craig's book, okay, basically what you do is you are supposed to be opening and closing your rituals with the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, and the lesser banishing ritual, mm-hmm. the hexagram. Okay. Well, so what are you doing? You're banishing the microcosm. You're banishing the macrocosm. Okay, now finally you're calling in whatever force you want to work with. Okay, you do your thing. Then you're going to close your ritual. You're going to banish the macrocosm, banish the microcosm. Well, if you conjured a spirit and you said, hey, spirit, I want you to go out and do this, and you close with the lesser banishing ritual, the hexagram, you just banish the micro, the macrocosm, you just kneecapped your own spirit that you sent out to do something. You know, I've wondered right? about that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. okay. So, so, the other thing that the Golden Dawn does that I can't necessarily say is problematic, but it seems like it doesn't make any real difference in terms of your effectiveness, and it's a lot of extra work, is that what they do is they'll do... Um, They'll do, first of all, they'll do the lesser banishing ritual, the pentagram, lesser banishing ritual, the hexagram. And then when they do their invocatory part, they work up to what they're working with. So, like, you'll do your invoking ritual of, you know, like the sun for mm-hmm. a solar operation. You'll do your thing. Okay, then what's that? Okay, now I'm going to do a banishing ritual of the sun. Now I'm going to do a banishing ritual of the macrocosm. Now I'm going to do a banishing ritual of the microcosm. It really is... It's not a very good system for sending spirits out to do things mm-hmm. over time, as opposed to operations that just persist within the ritual space itself. And so my way of doing it is actually, so some of my pentagram hexagram stuff and then some of the structural ideas I actually got from mm-hmm. chaos magic. Okay, and I'll explain that in a second. So here's how I do it. I have this template, you know, on my blog. Anybody can look it up. Anybody can use it. I do the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram to banish, clear out my aura and my sphere of sensation. I do the lesser invoking ritual of the hexagram to pull into that space 
the macrocosmic elements and forces of nature. Mm-hmm. Okay. Then I do a preliminary invocation, which is where you identify with the divine. Then I will do my invoking ritual to tune the space to the spirit I'm conjuring. I'll conjure the spirit. I'll give the spirit the charge. I'll send the spirit out. And I close with only the lesser banishing ritual of the pentagram, if I want to separate myself mm-hmm. from what I just did. Or if I want it to stick to me, I will just close with the Kabbalistic cross to seal in the energy. Okay. And that's how I close. I don't do, you know, any big banishings at the end. And so it's more like, kind of like the chaos magic, build, 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 and then you kind of just throw it out, as opposed to doing all this complicated banishing mm-hmm. stuff at the end. So so that's how I generally work ritual, and I find that it's pretty effective. I find that it's it's at least as effective as when I've tried to do, like, the traditional grimoire stuff. And I think I think it's it's I think it's a little better. That's why I use it um, because okay, you have the advantage of you know you're honing you're, you're honing your magical powers using these using these um, using these forms, but at the same time you're not doing anything with the forms that's going to screw up the practical operation you're trying to do. So they can really only help the practical operation rather than sure, hindering that makes a lot it. of sense. I guess um, my own practice, I kind of. You know, I, I got started out with uh, with Donald Michael Craig, but over time, I kind of moved away from using um, the pentagram and hexagram ritual. Like they seemed, you know, I practiced them for a long time, and they definitely there's like a consciousness alteration that happens when you're doing them, right? Um, but yeah, I remember doing sort of like planetary magic quite a long time ago, and then you know, you sort of finish up the whole summoning of the spirit and all this sort of stuff, and then you're like, wait, now I'm supposed to like banish everything don't i just put a lot of work into this (laughs) yeah that's that's interesting yeah Yeah. don't banish everything you just don't do it i find if you just don't do it Mm -hmm. the whole thing works better Yeah. so now uh my practice now at the end i usually just am sort of like all right we're done circles broken go do what you're supposed to and it it, Uh yeah and i mean Realistically, too. I mean, the, the operate field idea that I talk about doesn't have to be with the pentagram or hexagram ritual. I mean, you could do something, you know, much simpler, some kind of, you know, centering exercise on yourself and then, you know, calling in, you know, the mm-hmm. general powers, then tune the powers, then, you know, conjure your spirit and then, you know, give your license to depart, then some final, you know, grounding type thing pretty much follows the same structure. It just, you know, doesn't use the Golden Dawn ceremonial forms. And I would think that would be just as effective if that's the method of magic that appeals to you the most. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's interesting to hear you sort of put it in the in all of those um, terms that are breaking down like that. That's that's uh, helpful. Um, okay, I so you we were talking about the Golden Dawn stuff, and I know that you right. you've written three two books on Enochian magic, right? And you yeah. and you have a third one that you're working on, or that might be done some. Um, the third one. Yeah, the third one is with my publisher. They've had it for a while. Um, I don't have an official publication date. I'm hoping it'll be sometime within the next, you know, four to six months or something like that. All right, cool. So the first two are Mastering the Mystical Heptarchy and Mastering the Great Table. Correct. Um, so my, uh, can you tell us a little bit about uh, what your approach to Enochian is? Did, was it influenced by Golden Dawn Enochian, or is it more kind of like old-fashioned, straight John D stuff, or what was your approach? It's very influenced by the old-fashioned John D stuff, but I include some things like pentagram and hexagram rituals, 
with those old D associations, not the Golden Dawn attributions. The Golden Dawn added a whole bunch of stuff on top of the Nokian. And there's a lot of stuff that if you look in the original diaries, they didn't really even, it doesn't even match. Um, it's not to say that it's a bad system. I want to be clear on this too, because people have accused, oh, you, you're, you know, you're harsh on the Golden Dawn system. No, I'm not. I just don't personally use it. I know some other magicians who use it, who who can get good results with it. Mm-hmm. And I started out with it, but I found that when I switched to working with more of the D stuff, it seemed like it worked better for me. So, um, so what I do is the attributions that I have in my books, they're based on attributions that I derived, you know, out of the D diaries and out of, you know, the few primary sources that were around back then that covered like, you know, the British Museum stuff. And for the third book, it's like, okay, I'm doing this stuff on the 30 airs, and it's like, oh, I have, like, all the British Museum scans, and I'm just, like, going through them on my computer, like, <laughs> man, if I had this, you know, 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Uh, but, but yeah, so what I do is I, I focus on trying to do Enochian magic as it was explained to John D. and Edward Kelly. Now, as a point... Not the way John D. and Edward Kelly did it, because that's something that I see a lot of people falling into. Oh, well, Enochian, it's, it's, it's scrying, right? That's what you have to do. No, it's not. That's what D. and Kelly did. Mm-hmm. But the, the Enochian, the Enochian entities have, you know, their own practical powers. You can conjure them to do all sorts of stuff, you know, just like any other set of grimoire spirits. And so that's how I use them. I use them more like, you know, people use, you know, grimoire spirits, you know, like me from the Lamegaton or the Heptameron or something like that. Um, and the ritual procedures that I use are basically the operate field kind of structure, and I talk about how to do that in the book. Um, I also have, a, have templates in the book that show us, well, if you just want to do the prayers, you don't want to do those forms, this is where those go. Um, basically, I treat them as optional components. I have this modular, like, tech writing template in the book that shows, like, where all the pieces go and stuff like that for both the Heptarchia Mystica and the Great Table. Hmm. So, so I'm, I, yeah, so yes, I'm a deep purist, kind of, but I also am not allergic to modern magical results. The attributions that I have are all D attributions and not Golden Dawn attributions. But, you know, you'll still see things like the operant field method that I'm talking about um, in the books. So you've kind of, um, well, so I guess in the D material that we have available, uh, both in the diaries and in like the British Museum stuff, is the system, is there a complete system that's kind of outlined? There is, there is a mostly complete system that is outlined. Um, I would say that the Heptarchia Mystica is basically a complete system. He actually took that in 1588 after he was done working with Kelly and put it together into, you know, a real comprehensive grimoire structure. He didn't do that with a lot of the other stuff. So all the attributions are there. Mm-hmm. But, you know, like the, and, and, you know, he's got, there, there's documents they've got where he has his conjurations. But then, like, like the conjurations that you'll see in Jeffrey James, okay, those are pretty much, those are close to correct. But then, okay, then the table was revised in 1587. The conjurations were never updated. Mm-hmm. And so, so you've got, well, and then there's an argument there, too, among D. purists. Well, can we use the 1587 tabula recensa? Because apparently the story is that, that Kelly, you know, went down into the temple and kind of like worked it out with the spirits himself that showed it to D. Like, oh, well, the two of them weren't working together, so it's not valid. Well, 
you know, Dee then called up the spirits. They were, is this valid? And he had, he cross-checked it, you know, with the spirits they were working with, and they said it was valid. It kind of depends on the extent to which you trust Edward Kelly, who was kind of a disreputable character on the one hand, but at the same time, the results he got were not anything somebody could have faked. I mean, the system... The system is so comprehensive, mm-hmm. and there's there's so much detail that refers back and forth over this seven year period. It's like I I would have a hard time thinking that somebody could have faked that easily, you know. Unless, and this is like the kind of outlier thing, unless Kelly actually had some kind of another grimoire that he was quoting from, which has never been discovered. These names have never been found anywhere. There's like no other references. So it's like, you know, it's just, it's just one of these things where, yeah, people have proposed it, but it's pretty far out there. Um, it's, uh, the story of Dee and Kelly is just so fascinating to me because, I mean, Dee was obviously a genius and his genius was kind of like mm-hmm. well recognized, you know, like he was taken pretty seriously. And yeah. it's just, I would I would love to like just be a fly on the wall and watch like the everyday life between Kelly and D. Like did they like each other? They liked each other some of the time. Yeah. Um Kelly complained a lot about the the how he felt like the spirits were moving in his head and he was uneasy and stuff like that. Uh-huh. And you know what? I have experimentally directly invoked the Enochian entities like into my consciousness. I've done that a few times and Oh yeah, it's exactly like how Kelly describes it. <laughs> and if I were walking around feeling like that all the time, yeah, I think I, I probably wouldn't be too happy about it. So in a way, this might have been like the only way for him to get relief. But I mean, you know, we also like we know that D or that Kelly, you know, had practices as a necromancer, and he'd like he did all of this crazy stuff. Like this was. This, you know, be, being a magician or a conjurer or whatever he called himself, mm-hmm. like, this was in his blood. He didn't really have a choice yeah. but to do it. It's Well, yeah, and I mean, if you look at people who have really high levels of magical talent, Kelly certainly had a very high degree of scrying talent. His scrying ability is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, If you read this stuff, it's like, I... I have never met a scryer in my life who could scry the way Kelly could, and I met a lot of magicians. Mm-hmm. So when you're born with a really high talent like that, I think there's this kind of drive that it has to be expressed. It's not really something that you can easily put aside. I mean, you have like this extra level of awareness of things that other people don't have, mm-hmm. and that's going to constantly be intrusive, just like going about your regular day until you you know, figure out how you're going to, like, control it and focus it and stuff like that. You can't just, you know, some people, you know, maybe do, you know, run around and eventually get to a point where they can kind of intuitively use it without formal training, but formal training helps a lot. If you can find it. I mean, where do you find formal training if you're, like, the world's best scribe? Well, okay. I would say that, you know, I would say go to my blog, Algoides, <laughs> and click on the magical instruction link and then read through it. <laughs> nice I mean, pitch. Somebody who, seriously, yeah. so, uh, seriously, I am not personally a particularly good visual scryer, but I have no doubts that if somebody who was a good visual scryer worked through my system, they would get a lot out of it. 
Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, yeah. So, uh, well, speaking of scrying, this is a good segue into your evoking zodiacal angels piece mm-hmm. in Liber Spiritum, um, which I think is, is pretty fascinating. It, you kind of go through, uh, the archangels, or I guess mm-hmm. angel angels associated with the different, uh, zodiacal signs. Um, yeah, actually, that, as an aside, the reason that, that the four angels are called archangels is because the church called them that only because their names were mentioned in the Bible. Magically, it's like the angels of, you know, the Sephiroth are basically just angels of the Sephiroth. I mean, you can call them mm-hmm. archangels if you want, but it's more of a nomenclature thing. But yeah, go ahead. Oh yeah. Well, so, uh, and then you talk about, um, how to generate their, um, sigils, uh, using the, uh, Kameot from Agrippa. And then, mm-hmm. and then, uh, you get right into the Trithemian drawing spirits into crystals method. Mm-hmm. Yep. Uh, mixed with your operant field stuff. Which yes. now I have a name for it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, well, that's really cool. Uh, how did you? I mean, I know that the drawing spirits into crystals things uh, thing has been getting a ton of attention, especially ever since like Rufus Opus published um, Seven Spheres. Uh, but well, I know I know Rufus, and we've been friends for years. Okay, oh, so that's right. Rufus is in your lodge, isn't he? Yes, but I mean, I, I knew him online before he moved to Minnesota, too. Okay, cool. And yeah, so, so no, so I, I have been following Rufus's work and some of the drawing in spirits into crystals, the specific drawing spirits into crystals components are at least influenced to some degree by his work. Okay. Um, what I actually do, I don't, I, what I actually do is I do this hybrid thing where I will set up my Enochian table and I conjure him into the Sigillum Deamus, but I figured, well, I'm not going to bring the Enochian thing into it. And I figured, well, we'll go with the drawing spirits into crystals piece because it's basically the same tech and I don't need to bring in, you know, all this other stuff about the Enochian and why the holy table works and why the sigillum works and this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So that's what I tend to do in my personal work. Cause I'll just, I'll go ahead and I'll just set up the Enochian holy table and I'll just use it to conjure these angels because I mean, do talk to a bunch of these angels in the sessions and, it's like the Enochian angels are not like a completely separate alien thing from like the regular angels, um, according to Dee's work. And so it seems like it works. Um, in your personal um, experience, how do you feel like the Enochian angels and what uh, we usually refer to as angels are, are related or connected? Well, I mean, you've got the, I mean, you've got the, you have the stuff that's on the, you have like the the planetary angel names; those are right on the Sigillum de Amos. Mm-hmm. Um, there's form of the Sigillum de Amos. The structuring it's like a pentagram, and then like like uh, a septagram, and well, heptagram, and yeah, and it's like, and you've got so you have like the, there's there's these these the weird spirit names are like on the ring around the outside, the ones you've never seen before. But as you go in through the Sigillum de Amos, it's like Oh yeah, well here are the planetary angels, here are those other angels. I mean the the names are all in there. Mm-hmm. And it's and you know, D is, you know, in the diaries, you know, D is talking to to Mikael and Mikael is, you know, giving him how to make the ring. Um, you know, he he worked with, you know, all four of the big of the quote unquote archangels in the diaries, and they told him stuff about the Enochian system. Interesting. And so there's there there's a very strong connection there. 
Um, yeah, because the, the Sigillum de Ameth was originally from the Sworn Book of Honorius, wasn't it? Um, yeah, or also called Liber Juratus. Yeah, the Sworn yeah. Book of Honorius. Yeah. The structure was, in terms of like the lineal figures, but the names were not. D was given the specific names to fill in. And those names included some of the names of the traditional like planetary angels, for example. Interesting. I guess I didn't catch that. I know I've got a uh, Sigillum de Ameth. Um, I sh- I probably should double check and see if it's D's version or just the uh, uh, Honorius version. Yeah, because they are different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so I mean, take a look at that, especially like in in the center, like okay, so there's like the pentagram and the heptagram around it. I mean, take a look at take a look at the angel names in there, and you'll see some that you recognize. Okay. Yeah, I'll take a closer look. That's uh, that's interesting. I totally did not was unaware of that. Um, so the the angel names in in Enochian, how many are there? Are there is there like a fixed number? Are they kind of laid out sort of like um, the Shema Hamefarash angels or like? There's there's a set number, and they follow different arrangements depending on which section of the system that you're dealing with. Mm-hmm. So what you have in the Heptarchia Mystica is you have you have 49 angel names, and then you have Carmera and Hagenel, who are the two that rule over the whole system. So I guess that'd be like 51. Now, most of those, the majority of those names you don't work with because they're names of the ministers who are just under the authority of the king and prince. And the angels that you work with in the Heptarchia are the king and prince for each of the seven days of the week, and then Carmera and Hagenel, who rule over the system. So you've really got a total of 16 angels that you're mostly working with in the Heptarchia. On the Great Table, there are a lot of angel names. So each of the quadrants has, has a king and six seniors, so that's seven. You've got the, um, you've got the cross-quarter ruling names, so that's two times four, that's eight. You reverse those for Conjure and Cacodemon, so that's 16. I mean, they're different names. Then you have on the subquadrants you have you have eight angels and eight cacodemons. So okay. the total number so so yeah, so there so that's a total, you know, sixteen again per quadrant, so sixteen times four on top of that. Sixty four. Okay. That's a lot. It, it it they're a lot from the great table. Now when you get into the thirty heirs, okay, um there actually are only twelve. Okay, mm-hmm. and and people are going to get on my case about this because there is a thing, there is what I am fairly convinced is a mistake that just about every single other Enochian system makes, including the Deep Heroes, including the Golden Dawn, which is that they treat the names of the 91 parts of the Earth as angels, and I don't believe they are. I believe they are the names of the 91 parts of the Earth, hmm. and they're ruled over by 12 angels. So, and the 12 angels in the 30 years correspond to the 12 signs of the Zodiac. Oh, interesting. And so the the Gold of Dawn called them governors for the parts of the earth. They're not governors. They're not spirits. They're names. You can look at the thing in Libra Scientia, and I think it's, it's, it's the name by which this part of the earth is governed is what the Latin actually says. Hmm. The name by which, not the spirit of. Right. It's the name by which, and then the, the there's there's the angelic king or the ruler. Well, that's another name over here, and it's one of the twelve. Okay. Okay. 
Are the are the ninety one? Wait, you said there are ninety one parts of the Earth. Are they kind of like explicitly yeah. spelled out so we know what rules over Michigan and stuff? Or uh... well, they're they're bigger than that mm-hmm. usually. Um, a few of them are tiny. Okay, as you get okay, so as you get closer to the old the Ptolemaic map, you know that you see references to an Agrippa. The parts get smaller. Okay. Okay. So like um, and there isn't. There isn't necessarily an official set of associations for that are explicitly like North and South America mm-hmm. because he didn't know much about North and South America. So um, if you have, but I mean the part of the Earth that I use is for for the United States and Canada is the part of the Earth that he was told is the land beyond Greenland, which to me makes perfect sense. Mm-hmm. That oh that would be North America. And then there's another piece um, that, that's, and that, that piece is called Idunia. There's another piece that's called Onagap is the name, and the descript from the description of it, it very much sounds like, um, you know, Mexico, Central America, South America. So I use that one for most of Central and South America. Hmm. So basically, you've got like two parts of the Earth that cover, you know, basically two continents. Um, you know, Greenland is its own part. Mm-hmm which is weird, you know, right? It's like, how many people live in Greenland? Um, and then, let's see, the one, the one part of the Earth that is not covered, because D, D, D does have parts covering, like, the North Pole and the South Pole, so it covers Antarctica. Mm-hmm. Um, but the one, the one place that there's absolutely no reference to is Australia. Well, of course. Australia oh, yeah. was not discovered by Europeans until the early 1600s, around 1610. He was working with Kelly, you know, in the 1580s. Right. And so, and it, it's interesting. So, so D would have had the Drake map, which I've looked at. That was the map used by Sir Francis Drake that he would have had access to, you know, as a member of, you know, as a member of the, the royal court. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, Australia is not on it. It's weird. Uh, you know, the, on the map you see uh, Guinea, that is like Papua New Guinea. You see that? Just like the edge of it. Mm-hmm. And yeah, Australia, for whatever reason, ships never wound up there, even though they were traveling back and forth to the east. Well, I read so a really, uh, like, I read a book about this actually, about how uh, how that happened. Um, I'll try oh, really? It. Yeah, I think it's it's in one of those sort of like popular history of Australia books that has like this whole thing about okay. like this is why we discovered you know New Zealand before Australia and why we discovered this before mm-hmm. Australia because when you look at it, how do you friggin' miss Australia? It's ginormous, <laughs> but yeah. I assume that the ocean current that they were following must have been such that they avoided it or something like that. Yeah, I think it was like that. But, but I, or the winds or something, but yeah. yeah. If I find the name of the book, I will send it to you so you can check that out. Oh, yeah, that was, that would be great. Interesting. So then what do, Enochian, what do modern Enochians do about Australia? Is it just a land forsaken by the, um, the, the uh, well, angels? Well, <laughs> Well, there, there are some there there are some hedges. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently, there is a comment somewhere in the diaries that I somebody made a reference to this. I, I still have to like go and completely verify it. But where the angels were talking about Britannia, that is Brit, which is like Great Britain and Scandinavia is basically what Britannia covers. Uh-huh. There's some mention in the diaries about using Britannia for parts of the Earth that aren't mentioned in that aren't mentioned in the ninety one. Mm-hmm. 
The other reason that I think that Britannia would potentially be good is that, remember, we are talking about the old European concept of kingship. So this is influencing kings and princes and the like. And it works on modern governments. But, well, I mean, who is, I mean, who's the queen of Australia? It's still yeah. Elizabeth II. Mm-hmm. And so probably if I did it, I would go ahead and I would use Britannia or use Britain for Australia. Yeah, Because sense. I think that that would work. Now, I have not done, I have not done a bunch of magical operations, you know, trying to like influence Australian politics. So I haven't actually experimented with that. But if I had a need to do that, that's probably the direction I would go. Have you ever, uh, you don't have to answer this if, the, if you don't want to, but have you ever done, um, uh, Magical operations that that are intended to influence an entire nation. Oh sure. Do they seem to work? They work some of the time. <laughs> I guess there's. I mean, it's there's a lot of stuff yeah, going on there. There is, and it's it's complicated. But okay, what the three is what the thirty heirs are supposed to do? Okay, mm-hmm. is they are supposed to give you the ability to influence you know, the kings and princes and rulers of. A country. Mm-hmm. And so you conjure, so you, you open that part of the earth and you conjure up the angel that rules over it and then you could deliver a charge or you could do some combination thing of, you know, combining it with other, combining it with other Enochian entities. Like you could do things like, um, okay, I'm going to conjure in now the kings and seniors who govern knowledge and judgment in human affairs. Mm-hmm. Cause I want, I want to like, I want you to like actually have some judgment about something. Which, you know, as you know, politicians don't always. Mm-hmm. So, um, so, so that's, that's the idea. And I have used it in some cases for certain political things. And, um, I'm not going to go into a lot of detail on that, but I have used it. And on occasion, it has worked extremely well. Mm-hmm. A lot of the time it kind of works. Occasionally it doesn't work, but I, w- I would say that my success rate it's fairly good with that type of magic, though. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, I, uh, I've i kind of put off in, um, looking into Enochian stuff for a really long time. Um, and in fact, I think the only Enochian books I have, I think I've got Enochian Chess and then some other uh, old Golden Dawn Enochian book. But uh, mm-hmm. now I'm curious. I, I want to get into this. Like... Uh, and the, the 30 years thing, like the stuff you're talking about, it reminds me of other things that I've heard about D that I really just haven't paid enough attention to. Like he apparently was attempting some sort of empire wide empire expanding thing to influence the British empire. Like he wanted England to have more control and he actually had something going on in, uh, North America somewhere. I think, didn't he? Like he ne- himself never came over well, here, but had agents or something. D D actually is the person who coined the term British Empire. Mm-hmm. Okay, Britain was not enough. That, that that whole British Empire that was D's idea, and he had the idea. Yeah, we got to go, you know, settle the New World and stuff like that. So his ideas were very influential toward, you know, the early attempts by Britain to settle um, in North America. So he definitely had some influence over that. It's kind of interesting that after having so much influence over um, national politics, he ended up getting kicked out of the country. Well, so that was that was after Elizabeth died, and oh, um, yeah. James James hated witches who took the throne in mm-hmm. 1603. 
Um, he was, he was big. He was, you know, he wrote this manual on witch hunting. Right. And he's the guy, yeah, we've got to write the King James Bible and stuff like that. And so, yeah, so he was not very positively disposed toward anybody doing any sort of magic. Mm-hmm. And, um, in fact, although it is also true that, I mean, Dee wasn't really persecuted either. He was more ignored. Basically, he just got completely shut out of court life. And, you know, so, I mean, so, so he had, you know, no source of income. I mean, you know, he wasn't, you know, completely a pauper. He had a very large family who I assume supported him in his old age. Um, but, you know, as far as, you know, having, you know, the, the wealth and the resources of court, it's like all of that was just completely taken away from him. It died with Elizabeth. Yeah. Dang. He missed out on some cool stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that's fascinating. I, I, uh, I, this just means me want to read more of this stuff, um, which I guess is kind well, of... Well, I think I think you'll find, if you want to take a look at my Mastering the Mystical Heptarchy, I think you've uh-huh. previously done planetary magic and stuff like that, I think you'll find it pretty comprehensible. All right, I'm going to um, I mean, look. the Heptarchy of Mystica, it's, it's relatively simple. You know, I talk about, you know, there's all the complicated tools and stuff you're supposed to have. I talk about a lot of ways that you can improvise your tools and build them more simply. I had I presented an Enochian ritual at the National OTO convention and I was traveling so instead of like flying my whole, you know, wood holy table and everything down there, I mean I just I made I made a holy table mm-hmm. on a piece of paper, printed out a Kinkos and laminated it. And then, you know, for the sigillum I made it out of wood instead of wax and just like put the printed out the diagram and like, you know, glued that on top of it and stuff. Mm-hmm. It worked just fine. It's like, you don't necessarily need to have all the crazy tools and stuff. It's nice to have it. Mm-hmm. And I think that your operations work a little bit better if you have the really correct setup. But the point is they work a little better. They don't work a lot better. I mean, what's important is that you have, you know, something that represents the various pieces even if it's something that's fairly simple that you've improvised or, you know, craft-wise made yourself with some kind of shortcut. Yeah, my experience with that sort of stuff has been uh, improvised tools. I mean, almost all the time I'm using improvised tools, and it seems to work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, yeah. Uh, I've, you know, I, I do a lot of um, Greek magical papyri work, and okay. um, I don't use tin plates for stuff. I usually use aluminum foil or something because tin is really uh-huh. hard to find. Aluminum is plentiful. I know, right? I like to. I want to do a Jupiter operation. I want to get some tin. It's like okay. The the trick for that, yeah, is what you want to get is a galvanized steel. And the reason you get galvanized steel is because the galvanization is tin. And so if you trace a sigil on the thing, it's mm-hmm. still traced out in the tin. Yeah, that's the trick, but. It's a it's an interesting yeah. trick, except that steel itself is Martian, and so you can also get uh you can also get tin plates, but they're always tin coated steel, so it's never it's mm-hmm. never just yeah. tin, which is bizarre to me. Like I I wonder at what point did um sheets of tin fall so out of use that nobody nobody that they became so hard to find? Because um, yeah, it, it used I'm not to really be, sure. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure somebody out there, some historical metallurgist, is uh, is probably has the answer for us. <laughs> probably, yeah. I mean, you know, like like lead plates are hard to find too. Yeah, that's true. Well, I mean, that makes Saturn sense. Stuff, it's like, yeah, so that's poisonous. <laughs> well, yeah. So, so the trick with that is, if you want to get a lead plate, get a big um, fishing sinker, mm-hmm. then get a hammer and pound it flat. 
Yeah. I'll give you a flat piece of lead. Yeah, that's a good one. But yeah, so. Um, yeah, but, uh, so I found that, that, um, you know, replacement tools work pretty well. Also, mm-hmm. good visualization can work really well for stuff like, uh, magic circles and things like that. Although, you oh, yeah, you gotta be good at it. At the visualization. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so that's, and that stuff is kind of fascinating. And I, and we also know, um, we also know that that's an old practice. You know, people didn't always, or magicians weren't always carving circles in the ground. A lot of times they would pretend that there was a circle. So we, oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, Jake, Jake Stratton Kent talks about that, that yeah, the imaginary circle idea that goes back a long ways. Oh, yeah. That's a great, so, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of cool too. So I've used, I've used those tricks and they, they work pretty well, but that's, that's interesting mm-hmm. to hear. Well, I look forward to getting into that book and then asking you more questions about it. Um, but I think, We've probably, we have a lot, we've covered a lot of material. I think we can, we can, we can safely wrap up and people will walk away from our conversation being like, what did I just listen to? (laughs) All right. Um, Well, that sounds good, Eric. You know? I know. Yeah. This was a lot of fun. Yeah. I'm so glad that we finally connected. I feel like we, I feel like I'd also like to thank, um, uh, Ren Collier for, uh, for mentioning your name so often in, in chat that I was like, do you think he'd be on my podcast? And then he, you know, sort of, mm-hmm. he kind of floated the idea to you. So, uh, I'm super glad that he helped out with that. Yeah. Um, can you tell people where to find you on the internet? Um, well, let's see. So my, the main blog that I have, the magical stuff is, it's called Algoides. Yeah, I know spelling it's A-U-G-O-E-I-D-E-S, but, um, it's ananael.blogspot.com, and it'll, if you just put Scott Stenwick into Google, you will find it very easily. Mm-hmm. It's not something where you got to like memorize a URL or anything like that. Yeah, I'll make sure that there's a link in the in the show notes to that because it's it's mm-hmm. a great blog. I mean, you've posted so much amazing stuff on there. I think so. You started in around 2006, and you've got yep. like an probably an average of more than a hundred articles a year on there. So that's that's yeah, impressive. I have something like seventeen, eighteen hundred, I think, something yeah. like that total. Now, a lot of them aren't necessarily magic. I also comment on like paranormal, like weird news items and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. But I do post serious magical stuff, you know, interspersed there. And I have that magical instruction link, which is right on the top when you go to the blog. Mm-hmm. And that'll list, you know, all my commentaries on the different rituals and stuff you can go through. You can read. There's full ritual scripts for doing every elemental operation, every planetary operation, every zodiacal operation. So pretty much, you know, any kind of, any kind of, you know, magical power you want to do a ritual for, you can, you can probably find it there. And then your two, um, uh, Enochian books that you have out right now are Mastering the Mystical Heptarchy and Mastering the Great Table. And then, and then, and I mean, Mastering the Mystical Heptarchy is book one. It's kind of intended that you read that one before you read the second one. Um, it's also kind of nice because if you've done planetary magic, you're going to find that the, heptar- the heptarchy is pretty similar to other planetary magic stuff you've got. It just has a few additional Enochian components and some different spirit names and stuff like that. All right. Great. Yeah, I'll make sure all of that stuff will be down in the show notes. So if you're listening to this, uh, go read the show notes. <laughs> Uh, well, thank you, Scott. Thanks for being on, and uh, I hope that you'll do this with me again sometime. Maybe after I've done some Enochian and I call you in a panic. Yeah, Scott, there's angels everywhere. Hey, that that would be great. <laughs> yeah. Let me just say, you're not going to call me in a panic. You know, one of the things I didn't mention here that I tell everybody. Okay, mm-hmm. 
And Nokian has this big, spooky, scary reputation. Oh, no, I did a Nokian magic. You know what? It really is. Okay, so it's in some ways it's more powerful than other kinds of magic, so you kind of have to be careful with what you do with it. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's only as dangerous as, you know, it's something that works. That's really the only thing that's dangerous about it. It's like you, you're not going to, like, go insane using it or, you know, all these crazy stories that I heard. I I had an article on my blog about Anokian meltdowns. Right? So does anybody know of anybody who did Anokian magic and went insane or whatnot? And there, there are barely any responses. You have, like, one or two people. Oh, I heard a story about someone. Oh, I knew a guy who did this. But he was mentally ill before he started doing it. Um, mm-hmm. You know, in psychology, one of the things, you know, is that so a quarter of the population has some form of mental illness. It's a huge number. Yeah. And so to say that if you're going to say that Adokian is causing mental illness, what you'd really have to show is that more than a quarter of Anokian practitioners have some form of mental illness, and I have not seen evidence of that. If anything, the incidence is lower than the general population. Thank you for listening to the Arnamancy Podcast. You can find me online at arnamancy.com, where you can schedule a tarot reading or peruse the Arnamancy blog. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or your favorite podcatcher. If you like this podcast, support it for just $1 a month through Patreon at patreon.com slash arnamancy.